Hello, and welcome to the Thin Place podcast, the one more film blog podcast devoted to discussions of religion, faith, and spirituality in film. This is episode number 52 for March 2015. We're coming at you from the South by Southwest Film Festival and looking at Alan Berg's documentary, The Jones Family Singers Will Find a Way or the Jones family will find a way. Your hosts for this episode, as usual, are Ken Moorfield, that's me, and Todd Truffin. Hello. Todd, the Jones family will find a way is about a gospel group, the Jones family singers, and them seeking their big break into larger exposure. Uh, We had, we'll say up front, uh, slightly differing takes on the film. I was mildly to moderately positive, despite some quibbles with the film as the form. You seem to have more of a, a visceral response uh, that there were some elements of the film that bothered you, even though um, you liked the subjects of the film. Were yeah. you able to tease that out a little bit well, for us? Yeah, I mean, and and first, I I think it is important to say that the portrait or what I saw of the Jones family themselves in the film, I thought there was a great deal um, to um, not just admire, but to learn from, especially in Bishop Jones, the patriarch of the family. And I was pleasantly surprised by some of the, the attitude and the things, uh, the way he approached the various struggles, trials that any artist is going to have in getting themselves out there. What bothered me had a lot more to do, I think, with the structure of the, the film or the, the way that the the film, and, and, and we've been discussing, trying to tease out, is it just the film? Is it some of the ancillary characters surrounding the Jones family? The, the, the way the narrative was shaped. Okay, so let me put in some summary there. I, I think yeah. people haven't seen the film. Um, a key component of the film is the presence of uh, a secular, uh, he may even use the word atheist or atheistic, music critic named Michael Corcoran. Right, who, from Austin. Who is from Austin, who discovers the Jones Family Singers, uh, who says that he's, uh, I'm a gospel music enthusiast, I love black gospel, uh, who wants the Jones family singers to have success, who tries to book them into South by Southwest at a satellite venue. Uh, one year, it's not very successful. He keeps pushing. Uh, he brings them back the And he gets year. to make contact with a, a good recording producer. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he does make those connections for them. They are able to finally, after some 30 years, get a a record made. Yes. Corcoran mentions one of the things that bothers him is that he hears all of these, these, you know, performances and there's never any record of it. Right. And so, so yeah, we, we've got this one narrative thread of, of sort of trying to book them into South by Southwest and eventually get them heard by some industry types, which leads to being, you know, uh, appearing in New York and at the Lincoln Center and some other places. And this other thread of, you know, well, let's get a studio and get some help in, in terms of making a recording. So in, in, in some ways, it's a, it's a very kind of typical small town group um, 
you know, gets discovered by an industry insider and their rise to success, I guess we could say. Okay, with the little Philomena twist in there and that the the critic or champion, you know, the, the right. artist are gospel singers, That's are, funny. I had not are thought Christians, yeah. and their their supporter or their champion is is uh, leading the charge on their behalf is this kind of, um, you know, it's the secular atheistic Christian who, who ostensibly you know, claims to love all of their music and will turn around and drop quotes like, I, whenever I'm feeling bad, I love to go to one of their performances. I know that I'll feel loved and right. go to church or something like that. But but apparently does just doesn't believe in whatever it is that they're singing about. Corcoran says at one point, I, I just like the groove. I like the music. Right. I don't, He's not, not a lyrics, lyrics guy. Not a lyrics guy. And I will say one of the things that I, in addition to... You know, some of the kind of just the generic trope of the film. It, you know, another layer that at times made me feel a little uncomfortable was that, you know, the Jones family singers are all African American, poor, from a poor small town. And it's all the rich white guys that are being the savior to come in. And mostly the film, I think, handles that fine. There are a couple of moments, and, and you know, we're, again, I think that word obtuse. Um, is perhaps good. Um, later in the film, when they have a manager now, this you know young hipster guy, and he's they're in this restaurant, and he's like, well, maybe you guys could do some spirituals. And it's like, yeah, here's the white guy telling you know the black preacher guy, you know, he can do some old Negro spirituals. That would be great. And that just that part made me cringe. Right. Um, well, you had, you had mentioned the word obtuse too, didn't you say? You, Todd, being more music, more informed about just the music scene than I am, I tend to be focused more on film. That there, there does seem to be something obtuse about Corcoran and and maybe some of the other people feeling as though like they've discovered not just a good act, but this whole genre of music as though somehow or another gospel music had never been recorded or was not in the consciousness of, of white America before, you know, before Michael Corcoran walked into a bar in Bay City or, or right. Austin or Houston or whatnot and said, said well, oh my gosh, this new sound. And, and this is a problem where I, I wonder if it's the filmmaker because, yeah, I mean, Cochran certainly comes off as being a person who, even though he claims to have done all kinds of research on black gospel music um, seems the way the film portrays him to be totally ignorant of all other black gospel acts that have ever been recorded um, and widely distributed through secular channels um, such as well the, the one the one that I was waiting for the entire film and I was going to throw my shoe at the screen if, if I didn't hear the name staple singers okay. um, and finally, it was, but it wasn't Cochran that was Corcoran. Corcoran. It was some um, New York radio person likening their music to the Staple Singers. There's the Kurt Franklins of the world. Andre Crouch, who just recently passed, um, had a great amount of you know secular success as well as uh, success in the church market. You know, the Wine and Brother uh, family, Take Six, all of these other groups that have had great 
success outside of the church, he seems to be totally oblivious to. Yeah, I think the film more or less sidesteps a lot of the the racial overtones of the narrative that it's it's trying to craft. Uh, we do have Bishop Jones at one point sort of saying that when Corcoran first approaches him uh, and tells him who some of the singers are that he likes, that he mentions a few groups, a few groups that Bishop Jones is not used to white people knowing about right. or something like that. So he gains some at least initial surface level credibility of like, uh, okay, you, you, you at least know about some of these musical influences that, and, and that's the, that, that's that are problem. important to me. Yeah, that's the problem with the film is that they had to give us this little tidbit that seems to establish some, some knowledge, but then the way he is shown acting throughout the rest of the film is, is as though, this is a totally new world that he's never seen before. Well, that may part of, I'm just conjecturing here. Yeah. Maybe, maybe part of it is, is in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king or something like that. And, uh, maybe in Texas or Louisiana or something like that, where, where there'll be a lot of white people who have never heard of the staples singers (laughs) or, or, you know, any of these other groups or something like that. And so, uh, that that's not meant to be a level of expertise, but just at least could be. Now, the flip side of this, and, and something that also I, I found a little, I, I was incredulous, um, is that the the Jones family themselves seem to be um, portrayed as being entirely unaware of, you know, the entire gospel Christian music scene themselves. And I found that to be hard to take, you know, partly because, I mean, we, we are told they've been all kinds of petitions. Mm-hmm. Um, at, at one they point, have a web page. They have a web they, page. They do bookings. They do bookings. Um, you know, they, they, there's one night or one day where they're shown playing four concerts in four different venues, and it looked like almost four different states. You know, just, <laughs> you know, and... They would just kind of go set up, play, go to the next place, and there were other bands before and after them. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, these people know that there is a a larger industry. Now, not you know, knowing that the industry is there and knowing how to get into the industry are right. two totally separate things. Mm-hmm. But that's not the way the film told the story. You know, the, the film told the story of you know, it's like wow. How do you know we can play at these kinds of places? There's something called South by Southwest. I don't know. I it was a weird, almost condescension in that sense. Um, but up to, um, the obtuseness was going both ways. So, well, okay. I I um I'll say some things that I liked about the film. I found the Jones family singers and the bishop particularly less less obtuse than I found Corcoran. Um, I, I, I entertained the notion that there was a level of wisdom or understanding there beyond which they showed, but that perhaps they were recognition, recognizing the fact that Corcoran, who, while not writing for the New York Times, apparently does have some contacts, does have some names in his right. own decks, can get him into some venue that right. they want to play at. 
and therefore is is sort of like well you know part of being successful is dealing with people who have perhaps an inflated sense of their own self-worth or where the film really took off for me or uh, most engaged me was in the re recording studio or yes. production uh, because as they're trying to do a recording uh, I think what we end up one of the contacts that uh, Corcoran sets them up with is with um, a record producer I believe he said he was either part of Spoon or worked with right. Spoon uh, John Croslin and one feels as though like for the first time in a long time, uh, a lot of these musicians, rather than getting enthusiastic whoops and hollering and, and, and that's great, are, are getting praise and affirmation, but getting a very professional, respectful sort of, uh, can we turn the treble down on this? Can you come in a little bit slower? Can we build this? particular side, I think, did you say Crosland? Crosland. Crosland says at one point, you know, it sounds good, but what sounds good in a performance and what sounds good on a record aren't always the same different. Right. He, and I think one of the things that I was really impressed with Crosland was, yeah, he seemed to be the one, the one person who wasn't acting shocked like he'd never heard such a thing before. Yeah. Um, He's a consummate professional, and you know he was not trying to change them in terms of their overall sound or approach or even or content. But he was saying, okay, what's fun and to watch on stage doesn't translate always to the the record. And I'm going to tell you how to sound good. Well, he was trying to make them better. He wants to make you know, them he better. Trying to make them different. He, he want to make them better, and he, I want to translate you well from the stage to the record. Mm -hmm. And, the, you know, the interesting thing to me about that portion of the film is that he gets some pushback, yes. you know, where it's like, I don't want to do that or, or whatnot. And then and then Bishop Jones arrives and some of the family members and the musicians, it, it's clear that they're not happy and you keep waiting for this sort of class of cultures to come. And and yet it, it breaks your preconceived stereotypes or notions because part of what he says is, is sort of like, well, okay, we're, we're in unfamiliar territory. We've, we've got to, you know, we've got to follow directions. If there are certain things that we want and if we want them a recording or a record or something like that, then it behooves us to follow the advice or recommendation or leadership or instruction of the people who are more experienced in these particular areas and I found that to be very surprising. And while I was examining myself on why it surprised me, I, I think part of it was because I talked to so many Christians in the arts who have this martyr complex and who just assume, like, oh, all these secular people are out to get me, you know, or who will then spiritualize that and say, it's not a matter of quality or making it better. They want me to compromise the Christian nature of it. Right. They want me to make it less, you know, Christian. They want me to change it. And I, I can't do that because that would somehow be a spiritual betrayal. And so, you know, I was waiting for that very road, sort of conventional, justifying, like, we're not going to take instruction from anyone by, by framing that as being compromising the, the essential 
purity or Christian, yeah. you know, spiritual well, nature of it. And, and what I actually found or saw in, in Bishop Jones were, were, um, you know, something that challenged my, my own prejudices or stereotypes of someone who was a lot more thoughtful and sophisticated in his approach to his profession right. uh, than I was anticipating based on my stereotypes, not just of gospel singers or of black gospel singers, but of Christians and Christians in the industry. Well, and the film itself early on does a fairly good job of setting him up as a very authoritarian patriarch yeah. of this family music group. And so, yeah, we're expecting something. And yet, you know, here we get the great humble leadership of the bishop when he, he does say, hey, this is his turf. He knows what he's doing, um, the producer. And, and and once the bishop kind of sets that tone, everybody kind of falls in line. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we hear, you know, you know, one of the things the film doesn't really show us exactly is how that the rest of the recording session goes. But we do hear a cut of the recorded music later, and it's really good. Well, and I mean, speaking to your point about some of the frustrations about uh, about the film as film, it seems like the bishop sits down with the record producer, and the camera's coming in, and and the record producer says, "Can, can we turn that off for a second? Right. You, you know, which I think you know again shows the great professionalism of the record producer, who said who. who understands this is a moment, you know, the two leaders need to have a conversation here, and it needs to be private. Right. And obviously, they had a conversation, and something got worked out. And, and something <laughs> got... Right. We don't necessarily know what that is. And, and so, I mean, I can't blame director, no, Alan Berg, for them saying, please don't film that, you know. But in some ways, then, it, it's like a, a lot of the things that I liked best about the film were inferences that I took from events in the film and not necessarily things that the film showed me directly, either because right. they weren't able to in that case or um, because he was more interested in crafting this other story that was that seemed to less fit yeah. the industry as we know it or and see it, it then. And it seemed to be an easy, that, that would have been an easy fix. I mean, you know, later to come back and do it, just another brief 30 second, you know, follow up. What you, did he say to you? What did you, you know, what did he hey, say Bishop Jones, what, what, you, you know, what did he say to you? What did you say to your musicians or your family to get them to? Right. And it would have been uh, 30 seconds. Maybe one of my mild disappointments in the film is that Bishop Jones seemed to be a very, authentic. He, he seemed to be for that flashy black preaching style, very, very thoughtful and introspective. Mm-hmm. And certainly I, I would have liked the documentary to give him a little bit more space or invite him to be a little bit more introspective about this journey and this process. We do get a little bit at the end where he says, i I was made for this, or don't let go of any prophetic word about your life. And, but that I found that to be very tantalizing and say, oh, okay, a certain amount of that perseverance when things were going bad came from that real deep conviction that someone had made a prophetic word about his life. Well, yeah, things you could have 
introduced and woven through the story rather than just after the fact told me that... And we get that interesting bit where, I mean, for for 30 years, the family has been based in Bay City, Texas, Mm -hmm. very tiny little place. Um, In the course of the film, they have to leave. Mm. You know, Bay City is a depressed little town, um, and he make uh, the bishop makes a comment. It's been thirty years. I've done all I can do here, mm. um, and the and the family moves to Houston. But they still commute back to their. Yeah, church. they still go back. They still do other things, and it, it's yeah. You know, there's a complexity there of hanging on to the prophetic word, and then also understanding the the reality of certain just situations in life. And how do you make those things fit together? That's a great point, because I think you and I have seen Christians who go to that other extreme, too. I'm like, well, I have this prophetic word, and therefore, you know, they're closing the lights or, you know, in the building, but I'm not going to move because I have this prophetic word. And sometimes God fulfills himself in, in many unexpected ways. Unexpected ways. I, I should note, since you mentioned the Houston thing, that I'm... I'm looking at my notes in there, and it's right underneath that note. There's a quote that says, do they still do that festival, Woodstock? I would like to do something like that. So speaking to your question about how aware the Jones family singers are about the wider music industry, well, maybe, you know, maybe they have been very isolated in their community in Bay City. This shouldn't be surprising. Um, they, they, they seem to have a, a great amount of knowledge in certain areas and not others. And, right. and, and who of us, someone could probably find some aspect of things that I know a very little about and say the literature world, you know, I'm sure there are, are vast reaches of that world that I, I know nothing about, but to be totally unaware of gospel, yeah, that's the part that, that irritated me. All right. <laughs> so. Um, I wanted to get this question on the record before we wrap in there, since, Todd, you're more musically educated or informed than I am. In terms of the quality of the Jones family singers as performers, the film makes them out to be um, not just a different sound, gospel, uh, but um, very, very good, very mm-hmm. accomplished. How, how would you assess their their musical quality, their technical quality as musicians. I think you know, they sounded great. Okay. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that, that was kind of fascinating was when we did get these live performance shots, whether it was in a church or in a nightclub or at, in New York City um, at, an out, you know, at the Lincoln Center, you can see that the audience, they are connecting with the audience in a very effective way. I mean, they're, the, the people are really into the music. Um, there uh, and it, it's good. I mean, it, the, the musicians in the band are you know very tight. They know what they're doing. Um, the singers uh, are you know they, the harmonies are very clear, uh, very good. Um, there's a there is a dynamism. Um, they do some duet sort of things with the father and you know and some of the and the, some of the daughters that um, you know there is a real chemistry there. Okay. And, you know, I would be interested in, you know, finding this record. Okay, so <laughs> I, I was going to say that's probably then where where we'll leave our overall assessment. For me, um, you know, marginal thumbs up. I thought the film was, did a fair job of, of showing that sort of Christian musicians uh, wrestling with 
having to move on to a bigger stage and to what what effect that means they have to change. For it sounded like for you maybe like that that was more cliched or conventional than you'd rather just listen to the record of the Jones family singers. Than yeah, I mean, maybe. I, I really can't say that I enjoyed the film, but I, I can say that I enjoyed the Jones family. Okay. And I would very much like to get to know their music better. Okay. Um, so if, if that means the film was successful, then there it is. All right. Thank you everyone for listening. If you've got a comments about this podcast, feel free to drop us a line. You can also follow me, Ken, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash Ken Moorfield. That's all for now from South by Southwest. Thank you, everyone, for listening.